today's scripture reading <clears throat> uh, comes from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And it is the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth with wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went, and he hired himself out uh, to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came back to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. You know, weddings are a day of celebration. And for us, Julia and I, when we got married, uh, we had a full day planned. We had the morning you know, ceremony at the church, followed by a lunch reception outside the church for like three church communities that were coming together for the event. And that evening, we had a 10-course Chinese banquet. Uh, if you've never had one, you're missing out in life. Um, and we had a 10-course Chinese traditional banquet uh, to celebrate a, a little bit smaller group, about 300 people. <laughs> But uh, before that dinner reception, we held something called a tea ceremony uh, for our family members. And here's a photo, not of our tea ceremony, but of uh, our 
uh, Julia's brother and sister-in-law when they got married a year after, and that's us sitting in front of them. They're serving us. And typically in, in Chinese culture, this ceremony is a way for new, the new couple to honor each of the respective elder married family members. We would do so by serving tea to each couple in order of closeness, first to our parents, then to our grandparents, then to uncles and aunts, and then the married siblings and cousins, like they are doing for us in this photo. We take a tea kettle and, and kneel before them and serve them tea, and then they would, uh, and this would be a sign of respect and signify the union of two families. And traditionally, upon being served, the elder couples would then present a hongbao or a, uh, a red pocket to the new couple. Now, our families aren't super traditional, and we weren't expecting, and we're not super wealthy either, so we weren't expecting much from these cash gifts. Uh, they were simply a, a meaning of relationship. But when it came to my parents, my mother presented a hongbao to us, and she, but inside it, we didn't find any cash. It was just a piece of paper, but with a handwritten note, and it said, everything we have is yours. Now, as an inexperienced young couple, we were incredibly grateful for the generosity, but I don't think we understood the implication of the way my mother chose to express her love towards us. It was so incredibly extravagant that it's been a lifetime of unpacking what that statement means. Her love and blessing upon us in this way was really an invitation of relationship that was not quite so inconsequential. It wasn't just a one-time gift. It, was, it has continued ramifications on how we respond it to her in our relationship with her. You know, last week in our sermon series, we looked at God as judge from Luke chapter 13. This week, we look at another aspect of God's character. God is this lavishly generous parent figure. In this case, a lavishly generous father who interacts with his two sons. And here, too, we find that this love is not quite so inconsequential. Extravagant love is hard. It's hard for the one who loves. It's costly. It's burden-bearing. It's also often very unappreciated. But extravagant love is also not so inconsequential for the ones being loved. It invites a response from the one being loved. And here, we find this invited response is quite different from what we might expect. So we're going to look at three ways that it's not so inconsequential. Not so inconsequential love, not so inconsequential response, and a not so inconsequential repentance. Now, if you've been adjacent to the Christian faith for a while, you've likely heard this story preached. And especially if you grew up in the church going to youth group, you've all probably heard a message identifying with the prodigal son as the parable is entitled in most English Bible translations. But this title is a bit misleading. It puts the younger brother as the main character in the story. But in fact, it's really the father who's the main character in this parable. You see, the word prodigal means extravagant and wasteful. It's often used to describe someone who spends or gives lavishly and even foolishly in the eyes of others. And so though in the, the younger son is prodigal in his reckless spending, the father is just as prodigal or maybe even more so in his 
loving. The father reveals his love for the younger son when, the demands, when he demands his share of the inheritance from the father. Now, in the ancient Near East, it's, it's, this is a very costly ask because the father would have to sell off a part of his land, land that he would be depending on to support his family and to support himself until he dies. It's also a, very, a social burden. It's a burden because the father, uh, the base son is basically saying to the father, I, I wish you were dead now, so just give me what's coming to me and taking his inheritance. And in an honor-shame culture like that of the ancient Near East, this would be a social faux pas. That would have brought incredible shame upon the father and the father's family. I mean, what kind of upright man, respected man in the community, would let his son punk him like that? A respectable father would beat the son, then disown him for even having the gumption to even ask and make this request. Yet... What does the father do? He gives him exactly what he asks for. The father takes the shame and the disrespect of a selfish, ungrateful son upon himself. And after the son liquidates the land and spends the cash on prostitutes and on reckless living, the son comes back to the father. And we find the father again responds with an extravagant kind of love, this time with instant forgiveness and a huge party to celebrate. But a shamed and a dishonored father, like this, this one, would have disowned a son like this young brother. Yet this parable expresses this incredible love of the father in the waiting for his son's return. You see, in the ancient Near East, an older, respected man would not be waiting for a son who disrespects him to return. He would not be standing there looking for the son to return. He would not lift his uh, robe and expose his feet and run towards the son the moment he sees him. The father would not be throwing his arms around the son and kissing him. You see, it would be the son as the offender who would have to implore his father even for a chance to speak. In fact, the younger son had already come up with a plan. He's not going to come back as a son. He was going to come back as a servant. Because he knew that coming back as a son would be an unlikely outcome because of what he had done towards his father and how he offended the family name. Yet what does the father do? He welcomes him with open arms and puts on a once-in-a-year feast. And not only that, the father uh, cuts off the son's confession, his speech to say that I... Take me back as a servant. I don't deserve to be your son. And he restores the son to full sonship, giving him a robe of the family, the best robe in the family, giving him a ring, signifying family authority and belonging, and sandals. The father's love is prodigal, is extravagant. It's reckless, if you, you might want to say. And we see the prodigal love of the father in his response to the older son's objection to the welcome of his younger brother. Where the older son sees an undeserving brother taking more from the father and thereby taking more from his share of the inheritance, the father reminds the brother in verse 31, everything I have is yours. This too seems really reckless and prodigal and extravagant. In fact, that's exactly why someone like the successful investor Warren Buffett chose very early on to 
leave his children with less than 99% of his, his wealth. Now, admittedly, he's worth like $105 billion right now, so 1% is still more than any one of us could imagine. But fundamentally, Buffett's rationale is that any more would be reckless and extravagant towards his children. In fact, his, one of his sons, named Peter, took his $90,000 share of inheritance when he was 19 years old. And that actually, and he turned it into a, a business investment that failed. That, that $90,000 in shares would have been worth $200 million today. But he took it and he lost all of it in a, in a failed business experiment. And he came back to his dad, Warren Buffett, and says, will you give me a loan to tie me over? And the dad even refused to give that because he thought that would entitle and spoil his children. But we find the father in the parable does exactly the opposite of what wise fathers do or parents do today. The father gives and forgives and runs, in fact, to this wayward child. He celebrates and gives generously again. The father's love is overwhelmingly prodigal. It's reckless. It's extravagant. The father in the parable points to the prodigal love of God. You see, when God's children take God's love for granted, when God's children simply take, God continues to love because what's more important to God, a God who owns everything, is a relationship with his children to be restored and to be enjoyed. The love of, the God, of God the Father is far more extravagant, far more lavish, and far more prodigal than we can ever imagine. So how do we respond to this kind of love of God? I think if we're honest with ourselves, might we be able to see ourselves in these two, young son, two, two sons? What we see in them is entitlement and ignorance. In the younger son, his demand for the, his share of the inheritance reflects all the entitlement of a self-centered teenager. He cannot see the impact of his actions on others he only sees what he can get out of it and overlooks the cost and the burdens to others. He's only concerned for himself. He liquidates his inheritance and discards the relationship with and even proximity to his father by running to, to a foreign land. He blows everything all on himself and on pleasuring himself. And only when he finds himself at rock bottom does he even think about going back to the father. And to our modern ears, we may miss the literary features going on here. See, after losing everything in a foreign land, away from not only his family, but away from his people, he finds himself sitting in a pigsty. He's broke, hungry, and poor. And there he sits, longing to eat and to, to what is being fed to the most unclean animals for Jews. This is the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of rock bottom for any good upstanding Jew. But when he comes to his senses in verse 17 and 18, he decides to go back to the Father, but he's not really going back to the Father. He's not going back for the relationship because all he wants is to not die. He just wants to eat. You see, even servants in the father's household, he realized, get to eat more than what he got to eat now, sitting in a pigsty far away from home. Even at rock bottom, the younger son doesn't seem to understand the father's love for him. He's entitled. He's ignorant. 
He's ignorant to the depth of the father's love. He doesn't understand the character of his father. The younger brother, brother's response to the father's love is not so inconsequential. He's missing out. But he's not the only one. The older brother's response is not so inconsequential either. Upon hearing about the father's lavish welcome to his younger brother's return, he too expresses entitlement and ignorance towards his father's love. In verse 29, his response to his younger brother's returning reveals this self-righteousness that's about his own standing in the father's household. And he is completely unaware of the character of his father and the father's love. He thinks he deserves the father's love. He thinks he deserves the father's favor because he's towed the family line, because he's stuck around. Perhaps he thinks he's on the right side of justice and on the right side of loyalty. He snubs his nose down at, at the folly and the sinfulness of his brother. And while he may not have been sitting in hungry in a, in a pigsty full of muck, the older brother is sitting in a muck of a different sort the muck of his own self-righteousness. He's completely misunderstood the father's love because he lacks as much of a relationship with his father as his younger brother. Consider how the two brothers address their father. The younger one, at least, addresses his father in both the request and in the confession. He says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. But what does the first thing that the older brother say to the father? He comes with anger. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. But when this, this, this son of yours squanders, no title, no respect, no affection, just a demand. And pointing his finger at this son of yours. See, the older brother is not related to this younger brother. The younger brother is not, yeah, he's simply cast off a poor reflection of you, dad. He's got nothing to do with me. No empathy for the father's loss. No empathy for the father's joy in the return. In fact, you might even think and say that the older one thinks he knows better than the father. Do you know anyone like that? You know, both brothers are in need of repentance. Though their circumstances differ, and though their expression of their offenses differ, though their proximi physical proximity to their father differs, both are entitled. Both are selfish. Both are ignorant, and both lack a true relationship and knowing of their father's loving character. Where do we find ourselves in response to the living God? God who traditionally is referred to as our heavenly father. You know, like the younger son, we can repent of our waywardness. Like him, we can repent of how we take God's love for granted. Like him, we can repent of our dishonoring God with our impetuousness. And like him, we can often only return to God when we're stuck and we have nowhere else to go. But that's not all 
that we need to repent of. Like the older son, we can repent of our self-righteousness. Like him, we can repent of how we think we're better, how we think we're more obedient, how we think we're more spiritual or, or more just or more inclusive in the way that we practice our faith. Like him, we can repent of the way that we thumb our noses down at our sisters and brothers, members of the same family in God, even, for their folly, for their immaturity, for their conservative views, for their liberal views. And with our congregational conversations that are happening, the one happening right after this service, we can repent of thinking that we've done our theological and relational work much better than the rest of the people sitting in the circle with us. But that's not all we need to repent of. But whether we find ourselves in the younger brother's shoes or the older brother's shoes, we all can find room to repent of failing to truly know and enjoy the character of the living God and his love. The living God is not just a concept or a spiritual being. The living God of Scripture has been revealed in a deeply, as a deeply intimate father who longs for his children to enjoy the fullness, the fullness of God's love. So whether we find ourselves away from God in proximity like the younger brother, or we think of ourselves as closer to God in proximity, we often fail to recognize the prodigal, lavish, and extravagant love of God, whose love is more costly, is more burden-bearing than we could ever imagine. You know, in the days of Lent, leading up to Easter, we're invited to consider the sacrifice of Jesus as he goes to the cross. It's, a, it's an act of God's love that is sacrificial and costly and burden-bearing. It's a reminder that we don't have to run to the, our pleasures to, or run to, to escape or run to our self-righteousness to justify our moral superiority. We simply are invited to pay attention to the prodigal love of God. And one of those ways is to walk alongside Jesus as he goes to the cross. And where he walks, we find that we cannot turn a blind eye to our individual sin and to the sins of our community. You know, Lent provides a season for honest and humble confession and repentance. The American Lent devotional that many of us have been journeying through together in this season draws attention to the sins of America through its history. And in this week's devotions, we reflected on how the criminal justice system, how the war on drugs, and how the foster care system disproportionately affects our African-American sisters and brothers. These actions ultimately demonstrate a collective failure of America. A failure of America that many purport to be a Christian nation. It's a failure to know and reflect the prodigal love of God for all. You know, repentance is more than a feeling, a feeling bad about our sin. It's a change of direction from something to God. And how better to uh, turn to God than to know and enjoy 
a relationship with God who extravagantly and prodigally loves each one of us. Repentance is not a one-time thing. It's a lifetime process of unpacking the love of God that says, everything I have is yours. We just fail to believe it all the time. Repentance is turning back to this truth over and over and over and over again. God's love is not so inconsequential. And neither is our repentant response. So come. Come into the everlasting, the ever-widening arms of the prodigally loving God.